Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with Bob Doherty. Bob, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Good to be here. So Bob served as the Dean of the Forbes School of Business and Technology and as Professor of Strategy and Finance. Having served on over two dozen corporate boards, he regularly advises private equity firms, institutional investors, and family offices on mergers and acquisitions, corporate governance. He writes a regular column on Forbes China, on investing in leadership, he holds degrees from Harvard, Columbia, and the University of Cambridge, and recently completed a five-year term as a Fulbright Scholar Specialist. And the reason I came across you was through YPO Circles. Cliff Oberlin, who is a terrific guy, runs the family office network within Financial Services Network, mentioned the book that you had written, and I reached out to you. We had a quick call, and now here we are. So I want to Thank you for taking the time, and I'm excited to kind of learn a little bit more about what you're up to these days. Yeah, no, the pleasure is mine, and I'm, I'm grateful to Cliff to connect us. He is, as you know, a special person. In YPO, I, I just learned here, Brian, that you're a member as well, and it's one of those organizations that in some circles flies under the radar. You know, I have the good fortune to have invested in a number of, of businesses at all stages in YPO whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 100 company or running the family business, it's it's the type of learning organization that I encourage everybody to learn about and, and be a part of. So, yeah, I had the good fortune of going down to Miami, I guess it was last year, and presenting to close to 100 YPOers on my book, which is How to Build a High-Performing Family Office, available on Amazon. But yeah, we look forward to this conversation and appreciate the time. So let's start there. You have deep expertise within the family office space, especially given the work you've done with the Forbes family. And it's interesting to me, one of the things that we talk about on the show quite a bit is just the macro trend of family offices themselves as a term. 
or as a business or as a as a structural entity. 15 years ago, when I married into my wife's family, who has a small single family office, I didn't know what they were, and you didn't really hear the term much. Right. And now you've got organizations like YPO having dedicated groups just to family offices. I would love to hear your commentary and thoughts on just what you've seen play out within the family office space in the last 20, 30 years. Well, and you know this, and I'm sure most of your audience knows this, you know, family offices go back 150, 60, 70 years, all the way back to Mellon and then Rockefeller and and so forth when we had massive wealth creation. And then it became a function of that the wealth that the family had created needed to be managed independent of the family business. And so, you know, the there's two or three trends that are going on now that you're seeing a real proliferation of single family offices and multifamily offices, which I think is only at the early stages. I think you're going to see a real acceleration of it. But one is just simply the, you know, the wealthy are getting wealthier. And, you know, we're blessed to be living at this time in history where you're seeing productivity growth that we've never seen before, you know, driven by technology and innovation. And and I'm a trained economist. And so not to geek out too much on this, but all wealth is created simply by improvements in productivity. So you get more outputs from fewer inputs. And, you know, if you look at the advances in computing technology, telecommunications and so forth, you can see where there's just been massive amounts of wealth created because of those innovations. You know, I think in the biosciences and health sciences, you're going to see even more and more of that. But, you know, specifically to family offices, people are relying more and more, not only just on their own ability to manage their finances, but the enterprise has gotten so complicated in some respects that they need to rely on outside experts more and more. And so there's a number of things that people that have what I consider best practice family offices are doing in terms of sourcing the talent, putting together systematic processes, checks and balances, proper governance, so that once you have your family office set up, that you're going to be in a position to frankly pass it on to the next generation and the generation after that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we're very early innings, especially within the multifamily office boutique RIA space given just the cost required to run a single family office at a high level these days. I don't see that trend going backwards. Could you maybe speak to, when you mentioned a high performing family office, I'd love for you to dig a little bit deeper there and explain, are there metrics that you use? Are there characteristics that you see play out consistently across families that are able to achieve that moniker? Yeah, it really boils down to values. And all families have explicit or implicit values. And when I use the word values, which is one of those words that gets thrown around easily, but oftentimes misunderstood. So a value is just simply a behavior. And when you have a group of people, a family, including those who serve the family, whether it's in the family office or outside the family office as service providers, They are all bought into a set of behaviors, value systems that align to make sure that the mission of the family is being accomplished. And, you know, whatever the old expression is, the only functional family is the one you don't know very well. (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that. And so it really comes down to first and foremost alignment of mission. So the best practice 
family offices have a very clear understanding as to what they're trying to accomplish, whether it's financial returns, whether it's participation in the community, whether it's participation in philanthropic endeavors, there's a clarity of purpose and that purpose is underlined by these behaviors. So what are we doing specifically to achieve those outcomes for the family? You know, the opposite of best practice is worst practice. And, you know, it's one of those situations that when you're in that type of situation, it is oftentimes painful in the sense of there's lack of clarity. And all families, again, they're complex organizations by the very nature of it. And usually when things are not performing well, it's oftentimes not because of the service provider. It's a family dynamic that needs to work itself out. And now the service providers and the people that work inside the family office can absolutely enable and help solve some of those issues. But also some of those issues, frankly, just need to get worked out on their own time within their own set of dynamics that just play out in any family. Well, and that's kind of one of the core characteristics of a family office, in my opinion. It's not just the quantitative investing side. It's the qualitative emotional relationship building that takes place. So the investing side, I think we all have a pretty good handle on, or there's a lot of resources there. But the other side, the softer touch issues are much more challenging. Have you seen that change in terms of family offices taking on that responsibility of developing leadership, having next-gen programming? I know a lot of groups now have a chief learning officer embedded within the family office. I have. And the CLO is actually a great place to start, but then also executive coaches is, is another area that leading financial offices bring on. But starting with the chief learning officer, like any organization, you need to be a continuing learning group. And so the role of, of the chief learning officer, it's, it's funny, a, a longtime close friend of mine, I, Jack Welch, who had been the CEO and chairman of General Electric and had run GE from effectively 1980 to 2000. He grew it from a market cap of about eight, eight billion. He left, it was well in excess of, of 200 billion. It was quite a return came the most admired company in the world. And he was the first person to name a chief learning officer, a guy by the name of Steve Kerr, not the basketball coach of the Warriors, but Steve Kerr, who had been the dean of the USC Business School. And, and, and Steve and I have been longtime friends. And in fact, when Jack set up his management institute, he asked me to be the president and CEO of it. And Steve came in as the chief learning officer of JWMI. And this really applies to a family office, which is a chief learning officer of any organization needs to really understand the skills, the practical knowledge that anybody that works inside the family office needs to understand today as the baseline, but then actually have a perspective on what the future looks like. And it, it's, it's easy to say things like, you know, the people who are working on the issues of today are not necessarily the right people to be working on the issues of tomorrow. And so that's where the role of the chief learning officer can really be the arbiter of saying, hey, the family offices in these industries, we're very good at these particular aspects of what we do, but we seem to think that there's growth opportunities or there's adjacencies in these other activities or markets or industries that we should be getting into. And that's really a pivotal, a pivotal role that the CLO can play. 
This is a good segue to another topic I wanted to discuss with you, the human capital component, compensation, hiring, and firing. I know there's a real war for talent out there. And as family offices become really their own asset class, they're competing directly with private equity, venture capital, tech, investment yeah. banking, traditional finance for talented people. How would you find a chief learning officer? What's the mm. background typically? And, and what does that snapshot look like today in terms of really high quality candidates? That is a great question. And the realm of CLOs often is on education and the academic side of things, where family offices, in my view, you need to have that healthy balance of the education sort of academic, but with the practical real world of the investing world, of the legal, the accounting, all of the support functions. So it's it's not just how do we have the organization perform better from a management standpoint, but it's also having some subject matter expertise. It's not easy to find that person, you know, oftentimes, you know, you you can find that chief learning officer in a traditional type of company, but that doesn't always translate perfectly into finding a CLO for your family office, for sure. And then what about the broader question of just accessing talent, what compensation looks like today? What are you hearing and seeing within the family offices that you are connected with? on the human capital side right now? Well, and anybody that's hired into a family office, myself included, it's a dynamic set of issues, right? You know, a very successful private equity investor or a professional who might have specialized knowledge in an equity class or or a debt class, they can command a salary oftentimes that's different than what you would want to pay within your family office because the incentives are different. And, you know, the nature of finding somebody in those fields, those are very transaction driven businesses typically. And so, you know, family offices done well is focused on multi-generational efforts and activities. And, you know, I'm a longtime shareholder, 30 years of Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett likes to say, well, I don't really do much (laughs) other than sit in my office and read all day. And people think he's folksy and so forth, but successful family offices require a temperament that is not prone to action. And that's where finding the right candidates and right hires to bring in from venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, and so forth, you need to be really thoughtful about it. You know, the advice I would give is really centered around being patient in the search and being very clear about the type of person that you want to bring on. At what point in their career are they? You know, is this a job that you're going to check them out for three to five years? Or is this somebody that you can think actually be an extension of the family for 10 to 15 years? And those are that takes time to really get to know somebody versus, you know, some of the speed dating that you might see in some of those uh, financial services industry, you know, parts of it anyway. And I, I really appreciate your comment about just the, the speed and the personality required for these positions, because we, I was at a dinner last week with a family office consultant, and he said something that kind of stuck with me, which was oftentimes entrepreneurs in order to create that wealth, are making a thousand decisions a day and pivoting constantly to try to figure out the right pathway forward. But then on the flip side, on the family office front, 
you're probably making five or six big decisions a year, maybe. Right. Right. And so it just takes a very, and you have to have, you have to know yourself well enough to put the right team around you because your aims are so much different than they were as a first generation wealth creator. Exactly. And first generation wealth creators, to your very point, are entrepreneurs and some are very articulate and some are inarticulate as to their instincts. And just the speed and velocity of decision making and the criteria that they use to actually assess those decisions and make them, you know, they obviously have created a lot of wealth, so they made a lot of very good decisions. And so it's both a question of the velocity and number of decisions, but then it also gets to being able to codify how you think about that and then being able to train somebody else in saying, this is how I think about a business or this is how I think about a hire and versus and some entrepreneurs are just terrific at being able to communicate that and others are less so. It's a skill though. And like anything, you can, you can learn it. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club podcast for more information and to sign up today. I think it's just that self-awareness is part of the, the bigger challenge oftentimes. I want to talk a little bit about, I know you've got a new book coming out, multi-generational dynastic type yeah. families. And I'm, I'm curious, a lot of families talk about true multi-generational dynasty type thinking. How many of them actually do you think are executing in a way that will allow that to happen? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Like lip service versus or, the reality. Yeah, just so thank you for mentioning the book. It's called Family Fortunes, How Family Enterprises Thrive Across Generations. I had the good fortune to co-author that book with Russ Allen Prince and Cliff Oberlin and John Bowen, all terrific thinkers and and leaders in the world of family offices. You know, we did a a very extensive longitudinal study of multi-generational family offices. And there's just some great research that has been done that, that shows up in the book. You know, to answer your question directly, I would say it's the 80-20 rule. Uh, you know, that Italian Pareto really was on to something. I would say that 20% of them are actually doing the 80% of the things that need to be done to sustain multi-generations of effort. Now, what's interesting, just, and this gets to, you know, the point I made at the, the top of the conversation, the wealthy are getting wealthier. And so the ability to sustain, you know, presuming you, you don't do anything extremely risky in within one generation, the sheer amount of wealth will exist for many, many generations. And it's how you optimize contribution against what your mission is for the family. Again, whether it's continued wealth creation or philanthropy or some combination of both. But yeah, there's a lot of family offices that, you know, I won't name names that are doing things really well and right. And, you know, you had mentioned the Forbes family at the outset of this. They obviously own a very successful media business. It's been around for a hundred plus years. They celebrate, you know, wealth, innovators, leadership, and have been doing so for a long time. 
you know, they've done it like all other families through a lot of hard work, great communication, alignment of their mission and values that support it. I just don't think people have an appreciation for how challenging it is to sustain something for multiple generations and what that type of sacrifice and struggle looks like. And you've got to get lucky, I think, oftentimes, both with talent and on the investment side. But there are a handful of families that do it the right way for sure. What's the biggest challenge facing family offices today? The biggest challenge, I think, is lack of access to good thinking around family offices. And what I mean by that is, and you said it at the outset, that it's 15 years ago, it was, it was, you know, it was few and far between. It wasn't really talked about. Now there's entire conferences. It's, it's all, in many respects, it's a separate asset class. You know, the leading RIAs really understand how to approach and serve family offices because they realize it's very different than a traditional high net worth client that they need to come at a family office as a service provider in, in different ways. From a real challenge standpoint, it's a great time, frankly, within the field of family offices because so much is being researched. And, and that's where, again, I think our work is adding to that canon of knowledge and body of knowledge, but there's still a lot to do. And so, you know, you're starting to see work at institutions like Wharton and the University of Chicago and Stanford really start to think about family offices like they've never had to before. And so I can't wait to, to read some of what, be, what will be coming out of those great research institutions. Yeah, I agree with you there. It's much better than it was, but there's still a paucity of resources for a lot of folks. And it's confusing too for many people because you're starting to see the term thrown around quite a bit as a marketing gimmick for a lot of groups that don't truly have family office services, but they just think that equ <laughs> that equates to, you know, some type of population set, obviously. And, that, and that's, a, that's a real challenge, I think, for the industry. I agree. And I think you're also seeing some high net worth individuals describe themselves as having a family office when, in fact, they don't fully and that just is both a definitional problem, but it's also a practical problem in terms of for service providers, whether you're a trust company, a bank, an insurance provider, a law firm, what have you, it's difficult to actually craft a set of services against and sometimes an imperfect clientele in that regard. So I agree with you. It's, it's true. So I want to revisit the, the dysfunction piece. We're going through, you know, I think we've heard about it a lot, this wealth transfer that's occurring, you know, baby boomers are aging out and that wealth transfer is actually happening now in, in what I'm seeing and, and hearing. That leadership transition is hard for a lot of people and that relationship dynamic internally, if they didn't do the work early on, it's going to be a very hard time. What are you experiencing within the families that you know are you seeing that transition occur? Has it gone smoothly? Are there bigger challenges that people didn't realize in moving from one generation to the next? For sure. And I'm, I have three children in their 20s and just other families I co-invest with and you know, a couple I advise in a more active role as 
every generation comes with its own unique set of issues. And, you know, I am a free market capitalist through and through and a strong believer in the foundational values of what has created all of this wealth. And, you know, they say it's easy to be a liberal when you're young because you don't have anything to conserve, right? And then the older you get, you build up some wealth, you get conservative with it because you want to make sure you have it for, for the long haul. You know, really the same thing applies with families in any transition. And again, this, this just gets down to communication and it depends on the type of family office and where in the generational shift it is. Oftentimes, great entrepreneurs make some sacrifices against family time, against building those internal relationships at the expense of building the business against the family. And that, when that happens, those can be difficult transitions or more difficult transitions because suddenly there's a getting to know each other period for the entrepreneur with his or her children. But typically, you know, second to third generation, third to fourth generation, you see far less of that where the child or the grandchild has actually grown up within the family and understands the dynamics that are involved in what's required. And, and frankly, who are the service providers that are, well, he might not have my last name. He's a very trusted advisor to the family. But yeah, the baby boom, as you know, created a tremendous amount of wealth that is now starting to be transferred to the next generation. In many instances, it's graceful. And in some instances, it's less graceful. And I guess the last point I'd make is, and this is just speaking to American family offices, I appreciate your audience is global and that, you know, you've got people, you know, listening to you from all over the world, but American family offices and just Americans in general are remarkably generous and philanthropic people. We don't give ourselves credit too enough in my estimation for that. But the one thing I think is a real trend that you'll see, and you've seen it just at the highest level in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, which was led by Bill and Melinda Gates and, and then the giving pledge and, you know, what you're starting to see in terms of people taking large amounts of their wealth that they could easily hand down to future generations, actually diverting that into philanthropic organizations, which that's a personal choice, right? It's philosophical. It's, it's you know, I was on a call last night <laughs> with a, a multi-billion dollar family office. They don't believe in philanthropy. But the jobs that they create, the money that they put into businesses and, and the industries that they're altering, they're doing in some ways every bit as good as, as uh, if not more than a, a philanthropic one. So it's I a think that I'll keep going. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No. And I think interestingly, that line between philanthropy and investing, giving, it's becoming very blurred almost in a good way, honestly, in how families are thinking about deploying capital and leveraging resources. So I'm, I'm personally excited about that. I'm curious, you mentioned the industry is maturing and becoming more sophisticated. Access to information is getting better. What else are you excited about that you see on the horizon within the family office industry? I think the thing I am most excited about is just information sharing. And, you know, the idea that you have a family office, I have a family office, we have an understanding of what that means. And we have a common language to start to, to do that. That's one. The second is, and, you know, Cliff brought a lot of the YPOers together. 
there's lots of organizations that are pulling family offices and family office groups together, whether it's for, you know, conferences or even informal get togethers, you know, whether you're at, you know, Art Basel in Miami, or if you were at Formula One, like I know you were recently in Austin, hey, there's a group of us that have family offices, let's get together. And, you know, in the past, it was that type of information sharing didn't go on as much as as it probably should. So I'm I'm really excited about that. And that also gives all of the people, companies, folks that support family offices an opportunity to have more, you know, touch bases, I like to call them, which is, you know, hey, there's a trust guy that, you know, you should talk to, or there's a lawyer that helped me in this particular situation. Or frankly, there's a there's an asset manager who's, you know, really has a unique view on what's going on in the markets at the moment. And certainly we both appreciate, you know, what the Fed is doing with interest rates and inflation and, you know, war raging in Europe. It's a very complicated time. So more access to people, the better. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about what YPO is doing within the financial services network of creating this family office group. I'm actually, we're members of an organization called IPI Campton, and we're kind of co-hosting a, a synergistic event between the YPO team the family office group and IPI down in West Palm in a couple of weeks. I think that'll be really fun. And you're seeing more of that, which I think is healthy. A question that I ask folks on the show is, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Thank you for sharing that. I have a daily and a weekly. And my daily practice is I call my daily prime, which I wrote out and it starts with gratitude. It's a three page and I read it every day. And it starts for, and I, I read that every morning and, you know, growing up our kids, Marianne and I, my wife would every Sunday have a gratitude dinner, which we would make the kids, we would go around the table at the end of the meal and say, what, what are you grateful for? And, you know, kids being kids, some would say, I'm grateful I don't have homework tonight, but, you know, gratitude is truly the only true form of wealth. And then I have a weekly practice, which is every Sunday morning, I spend time with what I consider seminal thinkers as it relates to the human experience and in our existence, and just, you know, spend a couple of hours rereading a lot of things and just thinking about that. So I really appreciate that question. I've never got that question before. It's fantastic that you're asking it to people. You had a phenomenal answer. It's interesting. My marketing people said, you know, you should just end the show with the same questions. And, you know, I I felt like asking people what they were reading or listening to, I don't know, not trite, but so variable. And I, it's interesting because I don't prep people to that. I'm going to ask them that question. (laughs) And people always, but people always have a really thoughtful response. And it's interesting because they're all a little different, but thematically they're all very similar, which is, I think is really encouraging, honestly. But I like that you've got a weekly one and a daily one. That's good. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. I'm excited for the book. Could you call out the, the book yeah, details absolutely. again? The book, the book is Family Fortunes, How Family Enterprises Thrive Across Generations. And Russ Allen Prince was my co-author along with Cliff Oberlin and John Bowen. Yeah, who I'm going to have Russ and one of his other colleagues, Mark, on the show in a couple of weeks to talk. But they wrote a book about how to create a multifamily office, best practices, So we're going to get into that, which I'm excited about. And uh, Bob, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to join us. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Please leave a a comment and a rating. And uh, if people are interested in just connecting with you, learning more about the book or the other work that you're doing, 
what's the best way for them to get in touch? It's through my family office, which is my last name, which I have a tricky last name, Doherty, D-A-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y at Hudson Pacific Group, Hudson Lake, the River, Pacific Lake, the Ocean Group.com. Incredible. Well, I, I very much encourage people to check out both your previous book and then the next one as it comes out. And I look forward to staying in touch and thank you again for the time. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.